Let's pray together. Jesus, we're grateful to be in the house that you're building. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. And we love because you first loved us. And so we just, in this moment, trust you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move, that you would quiet our hearts, that we would taste and see from your word that you are good. So we declare with your word that it's at the name of Jesus that we bow. And we pray that as your word goes out and as your church goes out, That your word would not return void. That it would accomplish through your people what you have set out for it to accomplish. And so in this sacred moment as we open your word I ask Holy Spirit that you would speak to us. That your word would be that sharp two-edged sword. That would pierce through our opinions, our thoughts, and our hearts. Because you told us that our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? So Holy Spirit, we need you in this moment. We need your word. I have nothing to say, but you have a lot to say. So we ask for your help. And we trust you. And it's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Good morning. 300 years before Jesus walked the earth, there was a Greek philosopher named Zeno, and here's what he observed. You tell me if this is true. The reason why we have two ears and one mouth is so that we can listen more and talk less. Amen? You liar. (laughs) You don't like to listen more and talk less, and neither do I. And it doesn't take a Greek philosopher 2,300, 2,400 years ago to convince us that we like to shell out our wisdom when in reality we need God's wisdom. Isn't that true? We're kicking off a brand new series today for the next few Sundays through this month called Summer Reading. And uh, some are reading in the sense that we're going to go together to five different books of the Bible, and I'm going to preach a message about the main theme of each book. Here's my hope, is that you would go home today and figure out what it's going to take for you to read through that book this week. Does that make sense? So I'm adding to your reading list. A lot of us put together a reading list for the summer when maybe things are a little more slow, or maybe we're going on vacation And we've got those few books that we want to read. What we're saying is we don't need more of man's wisdom. We need more of God's wisdom. And so I'm going to suggest for the next few weeks that you take your summer reading and that you read Scripture with us as the church. Fair enough? So we're starting in Proverbs, and I'm going to give you a little little tip on that at the very end. So you've got to stay with me. All right, but if you got your note sheet on the way in, or if you need one, go grab one. They're in the basket right over there. Uh, we've got a lot of notes to cover, and if you're a note taker, which uh, statistics say, you've heard me say this before, 
that 98% of people that take notes go to heaven first. And uh, I made that part up, but there's a lot of notes to go through, okay? So you want to do that? If you're a digital person, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and go under events, and we should be at the top of the list because you're literally sitting here, and it goes by location. But Proverbs is where we're starting. Proverbs, if you're new to church or you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're not even a Christian today and you uh, find yourself sitting here or watching online or you're going to listen to this podcast 10 years from now, um, wherever you find yourself, um, one thing that all of us need more of is wisdom. The book of Proverbs is a book written to you and to me through the pen of the Holy Spirit uh, about wisdom. It's written from a guy named Solomon who is largely considered one of the wisest men to ever live. The short version of that is that God came to Solomon and said, kind of like a genie in a bottle, like, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? And Solomon made the great declaration that I want your wisdom. And God gave him both his wisdom and what you and I would ask for, all the riches (laughs) to go along with it. And so that's where Solomon got his wisdom. Think about that. The divine word of God coming to Solomon and saying, I'm going to give you wisdom. But if you've been in the church for a while, you know how the story ends for Solomon, don't you? Despite being handed the wisdom of God. Think about that. The wisdom of God. He fell to every temptation that you and I fall to. And so we come to Proverbs. We come to Proverbs, first of all, recognizing that the Bible says that we all fall short of the glory of God. We need a right perspective on ourselves to become wise, don't we? We need a right perspective of God to become wise. And so we're starting our summer reading In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And here's what it says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Lift up your voice and say beginning. Beginning. It's the beginning of knowledge. And here's the contrast. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. When you come to the book of Proverbs and you think about what it means to study wisdom... What Proverbs does through the whole book, what Solomon's doing, he's writing to his son. He declares right at the beginning in verse 1, to my son. He's he's saying, this is all that I've learned about being wise in this life. And who better to talk about the folly of sin than Solomon? Solomon had it all. He had all the riches, all the women, all the stuff. And yet, he wrote in Ecclesiastes, all is meaningless. So here he is writing this for our wisdom. And it helps that the Holy Spirit inspired it. But what you see through Proverbs, and if you commit to read it this week, what you're going to see over and over again is this contrast between wisdom and folly. Wisdom and folly. Let's start with the negative first. It says Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What is folly? The dictionary definition of 
folly is to lack good sense. Foolishness. To lack good sense. Here's what happens when you lack good sense. Folly often underlies sin. Just play back in your head of a sin that you've recently had to repent of. There's normally folly at the beginning. A desire to please me instead of please the Lord. Which is foolish, to be honest. Tim Keller says it this way. If God made the universe, and he did, and we believe that there's sufficient evidence to prove that. That's a whole different sermon. If you want to buy me coffee, I'll tell you all about it. Um, Kidding, I'll buy you coffee if you want to talk about it. How's that? But he said, if God made the universe, and he did, then it's not just wrong to disobey him, which it is, right? It's not just wrong to disobey him, but it's also stupid. It's a very theological quote from Tim Keller. Think about that, though. If God made the universe and gave you everything you need to know about it, then to have all the answers that you need, Literally every answer that you need. Then it's not just a sin to disobey him. It's also kind of stupid. As I studied that this week, I I had to get on my knees a few times and just repent. Because what what happens when when you return to the fact that God has given us his word. And yet we walk around so often... Wondering what we're supposed to do. Wondering how this is going to work. Isn't it astonishing that with all the riches we have in this country, we're one of the most medicated people in the history of the world. It's crazy. So folly is a lack of good sense and it often underlies sin. But I want to say this too. Folly is not necessarily sin. How many of you know that you can be stupid but not sinful? Isn't that what being a boy is all about? <laughs> amen? I didn't get any amens. There's a couple boys in here and they're, not, they're offended by that. Some things aren't sinful but they're not necessarily wise either. We can waste a lot of time that can be invested wisely. So that's the negative. But what about the positive? What what does it mean to be wise? What is the opposite of folly? The opposite of folly is wisdom. And here's what the definition of wisdom is. The ability to skillfully apply knowledge in life. See, what what Proverbs 1, 7 tells us is that knowledge is assumed That the beginning of wisdom is knowledge. That without knowledge, you can never apply knowledge to be wise. I heard another guy say, let other people pay your dumb tax. That's a good statement, right? To be able to see what's happening, gather knowledge from what's happening, and apply it to your life so you don't make the same mistake. It's a simple formula, but what what do we know? 
It's a very difficult formula because things get in the way. See, the reason that folly often leads to sin is that because we're really selfish people. We're really selfish people. It's always a precarious position to be in when I'm studying stuff like this. And then I go home. We have three kids, eight, six, and two. And, uh, you know, putting that into practice is like, is like really difficult. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you have a spouse, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever talked to any other human in your life, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? There's a few things that bring us together under a common thread, and that's we're all really selfish. Knowledge is understanding the world, and wisdom is applying that knowledge rightly. That's, that's where it is. But there's a couple myths about knowledge too, aren't there? There's a couple myths. Let me give you three of them. I think there's more, but if you're taking notes, you'll see three myths about wisdom. As you start to think through and read through Proverbs in your summer reading, and you start to think about all the themes that Proverbs talks about, and it talks about a lot, money, uh, sex, power, stuff, it's all in there. As you start to think about that, you're going to see all these contrasts between wisdom and folly. But there's a few myths about folly and wisdom. The first one is that age equals wisdom. Age equals wisdom. It certainly can. And I'll go as far as to say it certainly should. But isn't it tragic when you see a world-renowned atheist like Stephen Hawking spend his whole life being brilliant, discovering things that I'll never even read about. (laughs) And yet, walk however many years, decades, and miss the most important fact there is. So age does not necessarily equal wisdom. Let me take that a step farther with myth number two, that intellect equals wisdom. That's a myth. You can be brilliant and miss what seems so simple. That's why Jesus said you have to have faith like a child. Not be a childlike person in faith, but have faith. Faith like a child. There's a difference. One makes you foolish and one makes you wise. Intellect does not always equal wisdom. Politics alone proves that a myth. Right? We, we, we swing the pendulum back and forth in this country almost every four years. And we say, nope, that didn't work. We're going to go over here. And then we say, nope, that didn't work. We're going to go over here. No, that didn't work. And we just, we do that back and forth. And history, you, you've heard the phrase, history repeats itself. Third myth is that education equals wisdom. It certainly can. But some of those brilliant people who have ever walked the face of the earth never got an education. Jesus took a band of fishermen and tax collectors and turned them into the greatest church planters the world has ever seen in the book of Acts. We're literally right here because a loud mouth, running, running mouth guy by the name of Peter was dumb enough to just follow Jesus. 
That's why we're here. So there's some of those myths. But when you go back to Proverbs chapter 1, we're given this picture, this formula to steer away from. Here's how it goes. The the wise are mentioned before this in verse 5. Here's the key to you becoming wise. Verse 5, let the wise listen and add to their what? Learning. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Insatiable appetite to know. Always learning is the pathway to becoming wise. But then we're given at the end of chapter 1 and verse 28 and 29... The opposite. What does it look like to be foolish in verse 28? Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. This is God speaking. Then they will look for me, but will not find me. Why, verse 29? Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. You have a choice in this matter. Regardless of what theological camp you fall in at the end of the day the bottom line is when it comes to being wise and foolish in the economy of god he says you have a choice if if, when when you read through proverbs you're going to hear phrases like wisdom cries aloud in the streets but how many of us would be foolish and hate knowledge God says, I will no longer come to you because you hated knowledge. God thinks this is pretty important stuff. Maybe this would be a good time for us to put our voices together and say, whoa. (laughs) Anytime God says that this is big enough for me to remove my presence, they will call on me and I will not answer. They will look for me, but they will not find me. Sometimes people have pointed in the past and said, well, see, that's why God's not good. But what you get in the big picture of Proverbs is that God is calling, 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 calling. We've had thousands of years for people to repent. And in our folly, we stick to our own wisdom. Bible says it this way in Proverbs. There's a path that leads to life. And there's a path that leads to destruction. The New Testament, Jesus went and took it a little bit farther. He said, there's a broad road that leads to destruction. There's a narrow road that leads to life and few find it. Because we're not using our ears to listen. We're using our mouth to talk. It's important. So if God thinks it's important, we should unpack verse 7 just a little bit and ask ourselves what what is god teaching us in this moment what is what is god getting at and i think the first thing that we have to come to is what is fear what is fear Uh, this is a term that over the years has softened and and what i want to ask you is this just respect or is there reason to fear god i think there is reason to fear god Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. This is reason to fear. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and all. Sounds fine. But look at the next verse. For our God is a consuming fire. You want to know why the good news of the gospel is so good? Because the bad news is so bad. One of the proofs for the existence of God is the fact that we can distinguish between good and evil. If you want to read more about that, Tim Keller, the guy I quoted earlier, has a great book called uh, Knowing God. It's important. And so, what is fear? Look at Matthew ten twenty six through 33. This is actually an encouraging passage. If you know Christ, but if you don't know Christ, it is fearful. So do not be afraid of them, people in the world, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roof. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one, everybody say one, (laughs) who can destroy both soul and body and hell. Sounds like bad news, but here comes the good news. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than sparrows. (laughs) I love that. Whoever acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me, whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. It's just a classic good news, bad news. The good news of the gospel is that God came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. It's the thing we talk about all the time. It's the thing that separates Christianity and the God of the Bible from every other religion in the world is that when everybody else was saying, go and do, Jesus said, I came and did. That's where we hang our hope. So wisdom is gaining knowledge and the truly wise are going to look at the systems of the world and the system of God and they're going to mine that out and come to the conclusion under the power of the Holy Spirit, that the wisdom of God, as the Bible says, is foolishness to men. So what you're seeing there, and it's contrasted in Deuteronomy 31.8. Look at this real quick. It says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Well, which is it? <laughs> Am I horrified? Because the Greek word there, not the Greek, Hebrew word for fear there means three different things. Terror is the number one definition. Terror. And there's a truth in the fact that if you don't know Jesus today, there should be terror. Because he is a God who is a consuming fire. And that's very real and very legitimate. And we want you to know that because we love you. Hell is real. It's not a curse word. You might say, but then why is God so good? Because the definition goes on. It means three things. Terror. The second word that it means is awesome. Awesome. You ever just been in the presence of something and just looked at it and be like, man, that is awesome. At the base of a mountain or at the Grand Canyon or at standing at the beach and you just you get the sense that things are so much bigger than you 
man, that's awesome. It's also a movie quote. I can't remember which movie. The third one is reverential awe. That once you walk through, see it's a progression. Once you as an unbeliever walk through terror at the feet of God. And then you hear the good news that Jesus came to do for you. Which you can never do for yourself. It moves into that's awesome. And then the Bible says he begins a relationship with you. And you become one who stands in reverential awe at the feet of Jesus every day of your life. And we gather in this place as the people of God, Peter says, as the spiritual house that he is building. And we stand here and we put our arms in the air. We put them down by our side or we put them in our pockets because we're scared to put them in the air. Wherever you find yourself and whatever tradition you come from, we all come under one mind and spirit in Christ. We move into this reverential awe. But you have to remember it's your choice. You can have all the information and none of the transformation. Are you following me? You can have all the information and have none of the heart transformation. Don't be a fool today. And I don't say that negatively or to bash you. I'm, I'm begging you, don't be a fool today. Don't have all the answers available to you. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full." but he's not going to twist your arm. I like the way an old theologian said it. Just pray that the hound of heaven would track you down and rescue you. And for those of us in Christ, that's our story. No matter how dramatic or how simple, every salvation story is a miracle. Wow. 110 times in the Bible, we're told to fear not or do not be afraid. And there's even more than that, but the context is where we get that. But specifically, there's at least 110 times that the Bible says, fear not, do not be afraid. It's the relational context that you have with Jesus Christ through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. That makes us stand at the cross and go, this is awesome. This is awesome. And live in reverential awe of God for the rest of our life. That's fear. You can read that, the fear of the Lord is being the wisdom and keep moving. But when you understand what fear is, it changes. It changes who you are. When you begin that relationship with Christ... And you begin to walk with him and talk with him and listen to him. It transforms you. Which brings us to the second thing in the verse, which is that fear is the beginning. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Which means that there are some things that are true outside of the Bible, but there's nothing untrue inside of the Bible. Does that make sense? That's an important distinction. That in the Bible, there's nothing that is untrue. But outside of the Bible, there are some things that are true that would fall under the authority of the Bible. And we need that perspective to be wise because uh, as science progresses, we're going to see things and go, man, that's awesome. And our response is, man, I, I knew God had an answer for that just because I didn't know it. 
Now a scientist has figured it out. So uh, the Bible may not answer every one of your science questions, but the one that it answers are sufficient for you to trust in God. And that's where Proverbs comes and says, this is how you be wise, that you would listen and increase in knowledge from everywhere. But what's the difference? We're not just increasing in knowledge, verse 5 says, we're getting discernment through guidance. We're getting discernment through guidance. As you do your summer reading and you walk through uh, Proverbs and as you walk through the next few books, what it's going to do is it's going to guide your path. What did David say? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. A fool has all the answers and no desire to use it. And God says there's coming a time where I will not answer because you hated knowledge. Fear's the beginning. What does it mean to be at the beginning of something? It means this, the first and principal thing in a pursuit. If you're pursuing wisdom, it starts with a relationship with God. It starts with mining out, searching out, is this true? Because if it's not, don't waste your time. If it's not, I've wasted a lot of time, and so have you. <laughs> but because it's true, it changes everything. It would be stupid to not follow. So it's the beginning. We're always learning, always gaining, always taking notes on life, but it starts at the foot of the cross, at the door of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Because if he died, paid the penalty, and rose again to life so that you can have life, it changes everything. And it has to. Every moment is an opportunity to learn. To the contrary of that wisdom, though, what you're going to see as you move through Proverbs is there's three types of fools. You want to write these down so you can look and say, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that girl. The first fool that Proverbs talks about, it talks about 49 times in Proverbs. And it means to be close-minded. That a close-minded person, somebody who's not willing to learn, somebody who has all the answers already, 49 times Solomon's going to tell his son, don't be that person. Wisdom is crying aloud, screaming in the streets. <laughs> don't be a fool. The second one is only used three times. And it's a fool that somebody that lacks spiritual perception. And then 19 times a fool is considered somebody who is arrogant. That we know more than the next guy. And all three of these fools are rampant in our world, both Christian and secular. We have fools running around everywhere. And there's room for one more, right? room for one more the next thing in the text is that the fool despises wisdom and instruction a fool despises wisdom and instruction if wisdom is the skill to live out the knowledge you've accumulated it means then that a fool is somebody who's uh, 
not paying attention to the instruction that they're being given because instruction is the conduit in which we receive the knowledge that is the stuff we need to apply to our life. Foolish people can't stand being instructed. They can't stand being critiqued. They want to get better without the necessary shaping of being in community with God and his people. You cannot say, I love God and I don't love his people, because that would be like saying to me, I like you, Mitch, but I don't like your wife. We're not going to get along. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. God made you to be in community with him and his people. Now, I said all of that to get to the best part of the sermon. All of it. Because here's what the fear of God is. The fear of God is this, a state of mind in which my own attitudes, will, feelings, deeds, and goals are exchanged for God's. How's that going for you? I think that's in your notes because I want you to remember it. I didn't make you fill anything in. I don't want you to miss it. To be wise begins with the fear of God, which has a short order list of this, a state of mind in which you exchange for God Your own attitudes, will, feelings, deeds, and goals. I just want you to wake up tomorrow and be 100% selfless. (laughs) Ready, break. (laughs) I'm going to go home with a heavy burden today. Why, Why is it so hard? It's so difficult and it's so impossible So that you would get up tomorrow morning and say, God, I can't do this by myself. It's not possible. God, I can't do this. I can't even get past number one. My attitude stinks every morning. (laughs) Until I get coffee. Amen, church? Spirit doesn't move without coffee. Just kidding. It's terrible theology. It doesn't hurt. I'll put it that way. Attitudes, will, feelings, deeds, and goals exchanged for God's. I can't do that. You can't do that. That's bad news. (laughs) But here's where it gets awesome. Within the bigger picture of the Bible, the reality is, is that you need, here's a blank in your notes, divine help to be wise. You need divine help to be wise. It's your choice to say... I want to be wise, I have all the answers, but it's going to take divine help for you to actually do it. You see, it's your choice to listen to the knowledge, but it's going to take divine help for you to be wise. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I just love this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is a doctrine, I'm going to get theological on you today. It's a doctrine called double imputation. All right, you can impress your friends this week at work. Double imputation, where Jesus took your sin on himself on that cross, and he took his righteousness and gave it to you on that cross. There was a double transfer and imputing of our sin to him and of his righteousness to us. And it's in that that we're given Christ and we're given his righteousness. But here, here's where that connect. You say, but that has nothing to do with wisdom. Yes, it does. Here's where it is. 
we, we go on into the New Testament and listen to Colossians 2, 3. Christ, say Christ, in whom are hidden a few treasures of wisdom. Is that what it says? No, it says in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and a fool despises wisdom and instruction, the New Testament, Paul clues us into the fact that when you deny Christ, you're a fool. Not a fool because we don't like you, but because it's right in front of you. Jesus Christ is who he said he is. Look at 1 Corinthians one twenty four. Christ, the end of it there says, Christ, the power of God, and what? The wisdom of God. To be wise is to be with Christ. To be wise is to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to your life. That is wisdom. Verse 30, 1 Corinthians 1.30, It is because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become, somebody lift up and say, for us. Wisdom from God. That is, here's, what, here's how you become wise. Bow the knee to Jesus. Why? Because in Him, He's become wisdom for you. So if you feel like you can never do the things I just told you, you're right. But Jesus has already done them. In Him, He has become for us wisdom from God. What does that mean, Mitch? What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Here's what it says, that Jesus is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. You're not righteous, you're not holy, and you certainly can't redeem yourself. But Jesus is righteous, and Jesus is holy, and he's redeemed you. Amen? That's the gospel. When we truly fear the Lord, we're acknowledging that he's the creator, we're the created, and it's in Christ that I find my hope. Warren Wearsby, an old pastor from up in Chicago area, said this. He said, the greatest tragedy in this American life is that there is so much noise, one can't hardly hear the thing they most need to hear. You want to know why we plant a church? You want to know why you're in this room getting this message so that you can get filled up and go out and pour it out? There's people all around you in every area of your life, in your work, in your play, in your neighborhood, in your coffee shop, in your favorite restaurant that need Jesus Christ. Because when they're running around this world, there's wisdom everywhere. Wisdom everywhere. Wisdom everywhere. But it's foolish. You look at our culture and there, there's so many obvious things. We're, we're celebrating on one hand Fifty Shades of Grey and the new one and saying that dominating a woman in that way is totally fine. But then we come across to the next Twitter feed and it's the Me Too movement and we're uh, wanting justice. Amen. We want justice. But you can't get justice when you're celebrating sin. And so we need something altogether different, something altogether outside of us to make us wise. 
And the Bible says that that's found in Jesus. We're taking some moments this summer to declutter our soul and ask ourselves, what is God saying in his word so that we can be wise? How do we get re-centered on the thing that matters most by coming back to the gospel? Paul said it this way, just as you received Christ, continue to walk in Christ. Another author in the Bible said it this way, fix your eyes on Jesus. You want to get better? You want to be wise? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because the text says that that's where wisdom begins, in the fear of the Lord. We need Christ and we need the Holy Spirit to bring us to the Father and unify us as a church in love and good works. We need the noise of our pride, the noise of the world's chatter, and the self-righteousness of the religious to be drowned out by the whisper of God that says the good news that it is finished. And when you fix your eyes on that, you'll realize that you're becoming who God intended you to be. Let me sum it up this way. A proverb a day keeps the stupid away. Let's pray. Father, you are good and worthy to be praised. We don't deserve Christ, and yet you gave us Christ. And so we just ask that as we sing one more song together, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would work in our heart, that you'd point out where, we're, where we've sinned and fallen short and where we need to repent and trust in you. I pray that for every person in this room, we would trust you more right now than when we walked in, and that as we go into our workplace tomorrow or our neighborhood tonight, that there'd be a difference, not because of anything we've done, but because of what you have done. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.